One. Before we get started, a quick disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. With that, hello. Welcome to the Rangeley Capital Valentine's Day podcast. I'm Chris DeMuth, a PM at Rangeley, and with me as always is my co-host and fellow Rangeley PM, Andrew Walker. Today we discuss commitments and the tendency to jump into long-term commitments right when they sound best, but then have them look very different in hindsight. That theme first takes us to teacher tenure before we hit on mall revamping. Andrew, happy Valentine's Day. Any plans? Uh, I'm spending it with you podcasting right now. There's my plan. No, uh, I've got some plans with the girlfriend, but nothing much. What about you? Uh, let's see. Uh, no drama. You know, there's kind of kids crawling all over the place with activities from sunrise to after sunset, which kind of puts a little cramp in the style. Uh, I gave my uh, Valentine uh, chocolates this morning, and then a three-year-old walked in and thought it was very uh, unjust that she was to get more than one of them in the box. <laughs> so they, there was some dilution there. Wait, this is very un-Christabuth-like. You gave her chocolates on Valentine's Day itself. You didn't go buy them the day after Valentine's no, Day. No, I did, I did a little bit preemptively. Uh and uh, and then got a fitness tracker as well okay. for her to compete on steps. My um, uh, my girlfriend has she she let me know that tomorrow is the day Valentine's Day candies go on sale, but they yes. don't they generally don't mark them down to like mid afternoon. Mm-hmm. So she's got it on our calendar. Like that's when we go hit I the mid afternoon uh, mid afternoon chocolate sale. I love it, love it, love it. Um, and uh, so yeah, that's Valentine's Day for us. I, I, I sent her a email challenge on steps with the fitness tracker, but to be decided so far, have not gotten a response from her on that. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, teacher tenure uh, is uh, one of the one smooth of the transition topics uh, that we were thinking about. This is one of those things that like you kind of throw yourself into it, the, the greatest moment of excitement, and then you look back on it and think, Ugh. Uh, it's the practice of telling the very best minds that they're so great that they can't get fired. Uh, this has always seemed very strange to me. It's like saying, you know, if you're so great, wouldn't it not come up? If I said, you know, geez, you're such a law-abiding citizen. You're always just going around obeying the law, so I'm just not going to throw you into <laughs> maximum security prison as, as a reward for this. Under any circumstances, no <laughs> maximum reward, no maximum prison for you. And uh, so, you know, what has changed on this topic? States are, in many cases, uh, broke or nearly broke. Uh, states such as Missouri and North Dakota, uh, Iowa, have bills that would eliminate or cut way back on tenure. Uh, Andrew, what do you think of tenure? Yeah, so I think what kind of spurred us to talk about this is there was an article in the Wall Street Journal talking about exactly what you're saying. And my favorite art- my favorite line in the whole article is there's a biology professor who says, it is financial idiocy for them to cut back on uh, tenure for professors, which is really somebody who's speaking their own book there. But, I think so. <laughs> yeah. But look, I, I think tenure is a dangerous game, right? As you said, if these guys are so great, you know, the topic of firing them is never going to come up. I can understand it in some circumstances. You know, I think it originally developed because uh, you were telling me a little bit about this. Uh, it gave professors freedom to, you know, if they're teaching politics and they're pursuing some really controversial line of political thought or discourse, it kind of makes sense to shield them from the donor. So, that, you know, if somebody's saying, hey, like a dictatorship is what America really needs right now, maybe you don't want uh, maybe you want them to be encouraged to kind of step out like that. Or maybe a physics professor who's pursuing a 10 year long research project where there's not going to be near term results. It makes sense there. But, you know, ultimately, I think the market can see through that. If some physics professor's pursuing something great, everybody's going to be excited about it. Mm-hmm. His students, his uh, fellow professors, they'll be excited about it. Nobody's going to want to fire this guy. So I, I just think it's 
a very dangerous game that has tended to reward professors who do a lot of work early and get that tenure and then sit on their butts or do who are really good at the political aspects of donors and playing the administration to get tenure but who aren't actually great teachers and i think you you see it a lot you know there's the the stereotype of the professor who's got tenure and just doesn't bother teaching students and if students are the ultimate customer why shouldn't professors be accountable to them and if they're not doing a good job be able to get fired or kind of incentivized to do a good job i think the real question is are schools there for teachers or are they there for students mm-hmm. um, um, you know, on the one hand, thematically, people who want kind of flattening, want fairness, and really want to protect the worst teachers. On the other hand, is the argument for merit and justice and benefiting students. And I think it has a lot of the marks of debates about meritocracy. From the teacher perspective, if you were a good teacher and you were a winner and you were on what is now the tenure track, wouldn't you prefer to be compensated by giving getting calls on yourself versus being given puts. I mean, you would think that this would be an opportunity for bonuses or for upside. Um, Two two just aspects of teaching that I think I wanted to throw in. Um, One is that there are very uh, few jobs, if any, that are less commoditized but that are still compensated like commodities. Uh, uh, Harvard's Raj Chetty uh, did a study on teacher performance, really focusing on bad teachers, Mm -hmm. and said that underperforming teachers in a classroom that are replaced by only average teachers increase that year's students' average lifetime earnings by about a quarter of a million dollars. And and now let me just make sure, this is teachers in general, not Mm -hmm. just professors at this point. No, 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 this is teachers in general. Um, And then you look at uh, bad teachers to good teachers. Um, A Teach for America study that I read looked at uh, good teachers versus bad. It's pretty typical Mm -hmm. that a bad teacher will do about 0.5, about half a year's work in a year, and a good teacher will do about a year and a half. I mean, that's an amazing difference uh, that shows the difference. And people know who they are. A study in L.A., uh, teachers came out saying 68% knew of tenured teachers they worked with they didn't have to name them necessarily uh, who were uh, poor performing uh, and should get fired but it's almost impossible um California and Illinois each have about two tenured t- teachers removed each year. It costs over $200,000 of legal fees. It's basically like a court proceedings. Uh, New York, I think it's almost funny, incompetence is not sufficient grounds for dismissal. Yep. So if you prove somebody's incompetent, you also have to prove that there is no possibility of rehabilitation. I don't even know what that means. How would you do that? In New York, uh, I, I used to hang out with a lot of teacher friends, and some of them were in unions, and they were famous for the, there's the, the room where the teachers go who, like, are basically drunks or screw-ups but haven't kind of molested kids so they can't be fired. And it's just a room where they literally just come, sit, have a coffee, and do whatever they want all day as long as they're not teaching kids. And they still collect full salaries. Uh, You know, it's crazy. And I really see similarities. I mentioned New York teachers. I see similarities between something you said in yesterday's podcast where the government as it grows kind of becomes self-aware and some of the government's function is just to keep the government running and spending money on itself and its workers. And you see that here too. You know, tenured teachers as they grow, their function is just to keep hiring tenured teachers and keep the tenured teachers tenure and make it as difficult as possible to cut jobs. So I see a lot of similarities similarities between both. What, one, of the funny, uh, one of the funny comments, and then we'll go on to our second topic that I got, I was looking at uh, teachers that were uh, fighting against uh, uh, Governor Walker in Wisconsin over this issue. No relation. Teacher, no relation. Um, and uh, there's a couple things. One was lots of misspellings in their signs. I mean, so they were really <laughs> arguing for tenure and they were holding the signs. And the average sign had kind of just 
glaring grammatical problems and really looked uh, like it, they could have done uh, with some good editing and proofreading. Uh, a second thought is lots of Hitler comparisons, which is, you know, you know, when you go there is your first point against uh, the potential of getting fired. Uh, that, that, that's kind of questionable. And thirdly, this one got so exasperated that in response to something Governor Walker said, they just kind of really threw it down and said, okay, fine, I'm responding to you this time. And she was trying to show what a fury she'd gotten in by saying, I'm on vacation right now and I'm doing this on unpaid time. <laughs> yes. As if the first 99% of her point was like on paid time. <laughs> so like for once she was going outside of her time. So I would just, I would just, well, the, the, the thing I was going to finish with, I say, okay, so I sound complaining here. What's a model that I love? I love the model for coaches. I think it's the perfect model for employment in my mind, which is always at will and no stigma. Jobs should be filled with the best talent out of 7 billion people, and you get the best person. It's hard to ID that best person, and it changes. So the job holders just should change with the facts. Mm -hmm. And and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just trying to get the best fit. And coaches do that, and I don't see why teaching other courses is more or less important than coaching football. Nope. I I, I think that's perfect. I, I really don't have anything to add there. Time to revamp shopping malls. Uh, You know, we think all the time that the market is a discounting mechanism. Whenever I see something or have a thought that is trite or should be priced in, I say, wait a second, the market's a discounting mechanism. It should know when something's going out of business. But some markets just can't be discounted fast enough for terminal declines. It can be really tricky, and the results can be slow motion train wrecks. I was just looking back over 10 years ago, just over 10 years ago, Um, A major merger failed when the FTC said that Blockbuster Video and Hollywood Video, these two behemoths, were about to monopolize the video market and they had to be stopped. Uh, And only a few years later, uh, these would-be monopolists are gone. The whole video rental market is gone. Uh, It's possible looking at, you know, kind of the mall owner uh, right now that there's a similar scramble for relevance. They're just, you know, just declining and declining and declining. It's not clear to see where it stops. Um, but their efforts to revamp and change direction are really running into a problem with contracts uh, in department stores uh, that were written in headier days, in their, he- in their heydays, where they were really able to kind of divide up spoils that they had. Um, so, Andrew, I wanted to ask you about this topic. Do malls have any use for you? Do they have any use for anybody? And why are we we going into this now? Yeah, so look, I think malls and their traditional, you know, there's the big Macy's, there's the Annie Ann's in the middle, Mm -hmm. a bunch of like little local stores, and then there's a Sears on the end or something. I think malls in that aspect are dead or dying. Uh, I, I don't think there's too much of a question there. There is a shift. I think there a lot of malls are going to become, you know, there'll be a movie theater anchor in one end. There will be a bunch of lifestyle things, you know, a Dave and Buster's mm-hmm. and escape room, which is something we've done and we've loved. And it's really going to be a place to go where you congregate for a lot of lifestyle things, restaurants, uh, movie theater, all that sort of stuff. So I think there's a transition to this relevance. And the question is really, if you've got a mall that's already built up. Does it make sense to take that mall and transition it to the relevance by slowly kicking stores out and then rebuild, doing a lot of construction rebuilding? Or is it better to just go build a new mall and suit it exactly for this movie theater or Dave and Buster's and kind of the new lifestyle use? It can be smaller. It can be uh, it, it can be much better designed if you do it that way. So I think there's that question. Uh, you know I've been a big bear on these big. Uh, department store yep. real estate place, but I think it does show that there is value in these uh, stores that have 
leases that were struck back in 1970s, 1960s. There's been a ton of inflation, a ton of changes. And if their leases have a lot of contractual rights, they can kind of say, hey, mall owner, if you're going to do this thing that's going to create $150 million of value, you need to give us some of that value because we've got contractual rights that say you can't do this without our permission. So I think it's super interesting. Yeah, you know, I think if you just looked at the physical plant, it should be able to be transitioned without... Uh, without having to go through a lot of drama onto things that are more of a sensory uh, sensory experience, climbing walls or that kind of thing you need to go to. I can't buy a climbing wall climb on Amazon. I can buy anything I need on Amazon. I can read any reviews. I don't need to go to some store to discover, you know, what are they selling at Radio Shack today or something like that. (laughs) I don't think you can can go to the Radio (laughs) Shack anyway. Not not, not kind of a 21st century need, uh, but the things, you know, movie theaters really are better than watching a movie at your home. That kind of thing, I think, will uh, survive and could thrive but these contracts are just killers if they were uh, symmetrical um i always think that businesses that have contracts like this just spend the first 364 days a year trying to maximize the value and then sort out the sort out the the minutiae later but these contracts it's if they don't see themselves as similarly in peril the uh, cliche desperate times call for desperate measures. It's hard to take the desperate measures when you're encumbered. Uh, they said that they need four parking spaces per 1,000 square feet of gross leasable space. Well, guess what? There ain't four customers per 1,000 square feet of <laughs> Sears these days. I mean, there might not be four customers at any one time in a whole Sears. Uh, and uh, so the idea that you could just quickly transition and put it to its best, highest use uh, makes it makes it really tricky. No, I, look, I think that's a great point. But at the same time, like think back to the 70s. Sears did these mall owners a huge favor when they signed this giant lease, right? Mm-hmm. Because it, it, it's a chicken or the egg problem. A mall mm-hmm. can't get the leases. A mall can't get the financing to fill out or get other stores to fill out until they have a big anchor tenant. And Sears gave them, in the 70s, they were this big dominant players. When a Sears signed their name on the dotted line for a 100-year lease, they gave the mall an ability to get started. And yep. Sears got a lot of contractual rights and protection. And now they're saying, hey, we have these contractual rights and protection. We demand some value for them. I, I get it's not a great look for a Macy's to be saying like, hey, this mall is going to fail. And unless you pay us $25 million, we're not going to let you save this mall. But at the same time, it's there. They've got it. And they were the ones who got the mall off the ground. So, you know, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It'll be, it'll be interesting to see which way it goes. The suits at this point are going in both directions. So if you say, who's going who's gonna to extract the value here? I think the lawyers are going to extract a certain amount of the value. <laughs> uh, Sears is suing a mall owner for the right to sublease to Dick's Sporting Goods. Uh, the mall owner's fighting that move. Um, and, you know, you're just both facing this precipitous change that you can buy everything online. Kids can even hang out at the mall online or on their phones. You know, you don't need the uh, mall for or even just social logistics. I, I mean, I remember when I was a kid, Sears was kind of the cliche place. You know, I had my mom and a bunch of sisters at home. If my dad and I kind of wanted to scoot out the back door, yeah. go somewhere and be like, "Hey, I think we need to go buy a drill bit at Sears or something like that." <laughs> that was kind of our that was kind of our excuse to kind of just go somewhere and hang out as guys. And I don't know that anybody's done that for about a quarter of a century at this point. No, I, I, I think there's a great point. So I, I don't have too much more to add. I have to keep talking about it if you want to, or we can wrap it up no, here. No, I, I, I think that we should go uh, on our Valentine's Day way. Uh, happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Happy Valentine's Day, Andrew. And uh, uh, I, that I just think that uh, 
Um, oh, one last last little go, thing go, go. I'll say on real estate, and then let me, and then I'll just go to our uh, conclusion. Real estate. As a value investor who spends most of my time thinking about public capital markets, but I'm also happy to look at real estate and other things, I've been disappointed in my ability to find distressed real estate where you can push somebody around. Yeah. And I think that one of the reasons why real estate markets don't clear, like you don't see stocks that just nobody wants to buy for a few years, like a vacant stock. The price just goes down. It's still, there's a buyer and a seller. I, I and love real estate, people say like, oh, the, it, a stock declined by 10% today because there were more sellers than the buyers. It's like, no, that's literally impossible. For every trade, there is a buyer and seller. It's just the buyers wanted lower prices, so the sellers had to come down to get there. Market's clear, and they function mostly efficiently, but real estate can just be vacant for a while. And one of the reasons why I've discovered that that can happen, even though I kind of poke around the periphery of real estate looking for bargains, and I find that it's hard to push real estate people around, is that the incumbents are expert at limited liability. And even if they're overall what I would describe as more or less bankrupt, they don't actually have a problem because these individual projects are fairly protected from each other. Mm -hmm. They tend, good real estate people tend to be good legal people. They tend to be litigious. Everything's non-recourse. Yep. And so there's, there, it can be very hard to get fire sales when you're a fire sale seeker. You know, it's also a lot of frictional costs and it can be very hard to get a fire sale when you need to pay lawyers on every which side. You need to get a bit, you need to get a mortgage and pay the bank mortgage fees, uh, real estate agent fees, finder fees, all that sort of stuff. So very high frictional costs, uh, I think can and kind of hurt there too. Though I think the best place I've never really gotten into it, but like government auctions and stuff, mm -hmm. you, you always hear about people finding, you know, oh, they sold it for a hundred bucks and it was a seven million dollar mansion or something. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've, I've participated a few times. I have uh, once participated on something that they swore up and down would be uh, would be confidential, and then it was kind of put online five seconds later, <laughs> uh, which was kind of funny because it was the government. But uh, but yeah, no, um, I, I bet have uh, have uh, have had a few things work out there. Um, that's all the time we have for today. It's actually more than the time we have for today. Before we hit your disclosures, a reminder, if you like the podcast, the best way to get more is to recommend us to a friend and get them to start listening. Uh, uh, leave a review. Yeah, I and, feel like uh, I feel like either our listeners don't have a lot of friends or aren't recommending us enough because we, we look at these things and it is possible all of our listeners are just complete loners and not recommending them. But We, we, we expect more. Yeah, uh, we want exponential growth here. We do. Uh, disclosure, none for me. Andrew? Nothing, nothing. Have a good one.